Thank you, ladies, for blessing us with wonderful music. And uh, I just love it how the music ministry of this church is expanding. And uh, another year or two, it'll fill up both sides of the sanctuary. And the, the songs you play are, are some of my favorites. And even if I don't know them after you play them, they become my favorites. I'd like to welcome you to Grace Reformed Baptist Church. And we have a lot going on today. Um, there's, for next week, not today, there's youth choir practice after church next week. Please see Isaac today for the True Church Conference that's coming up. After church, we have a fellowship lunch over in the fellowship hall. There's plenty of food, and you're all welcome to come and partake but partake at a fellowship. Sit with somebody you don't know real well and get to know them. Ask them all kinds of insightful questions. Maybe even start with, what's your testimony? How did the Lord come to save your wretched soul? And then you could tell that person how the Lord was merciful to you, too, with your wretched soul. Speaking of wretched souls, the Lord saved me about 40 years ago. Um, it was... Like the last Sunday evening, Saturday evening in January in a parking lot up in Maine. And I actually took Gail and showed her the spot, but a car was parked on it. But I said, under that car where the oil is dripping, that's where he saved me from hell. And I am so thankful to tell you guys that this week I finally finished reading through the Bible. It's a true story. This Bible, not my Bible. My Bible's in the back. I read through that a lot, two or three times a year. But I just finished reading the Legacy Bible that uh, John MacArthur has promoted where the translators used Yahweh many times and instead of servant, used slave. So if you will read it, this is free to whoever picks it up first from the back. So... I don't hang on to books. I pass them on. I've got my own Bible. If you want to check out the Legacy Bible, you're more than welcome to it. We have lunch right after here, so walk over to the fellowship hall. We're going to have a short business meeting just to vote on members, and then we're going to come back here for baptism service. I don't know exactly when it's going to happen, but I'm going to be watching how fast you're eating and fellowshipping and asking those insightful questions. And I will call us to order in the fellowship hall to vote on some people. So it'll be between 1.30 and 2, probably 1.45. So I'd like us to, after that, just make our way over here um, for the baptism. So you just have to play it by ear as I play it by ear um, for how we conduct the rest of the, the afternoon. Are you, are you coming up? Sorry about that. I missed my own note to call. Let's go ahead and come together in a moment of prayer. I want you to take a moment privately where you're at to prepare your heart to worship the Lord. You can confess your sin and recognize he's faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. 
of something that we know, but something incredibly profound. So take a moment and think on those things, and then ask for the illumination of the Holy Spirit to help you hear, and beyond that, to heed God's word today, and to encourage one another in the fellowship of the saints. Take a moment now to prepare your heart to worship Christ. Let us pray. Father, we have gathered together this day to worship your holy name. It is only through the blood of Jesus Christ that atones for every one of our sin that has caused us then to be brought into fellowship with you. So we come boldly before the throne of grace, not with presumption or pride, but with great humility and recognizing that you will hear us. Hear us not because we're worthy of hearing, because you are gracious and merciful to us. And so I pray this day as we gather together here as a, a body of believers as we, we pray to your holy name. Father, I pray that indeed that your kingdom come and that your will be done. May your rule and reign begin first in our own heart as we respond in faith to submit to you, confessing Jesus Christ as Lord, examining every aspect of our individual lives to make sure that they are in agreement and compliance to your holy word. And to the degree it's not, which we find ourselves in that state quite often, May we not with guilt, but with great glory, praise your holy name for the forgiveness that is provided for us in Christ Jesus, an ever-flowing fountain of cleansing blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins that can atone for and wipe away all our sin and that we can stand before you in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ with nothing for the, our adversary to bring up against us. What a great place to be. No more guilt. No more rebellion. You have regenerated our hearts. I pray for anyone in our midst that may have heard these words, been exposed to these great truths, sung them in the various hymns that we sing, have seen the work of the Holy Spirit, among us, I pray, Father, that they will truly come to Christ and truly confess Jesus Christ as Lord. May we not be superficial in our faith, but may it be expressed in supernatural ways. I pray that you continually conform each one of us to the image of your Son. And when we find ourselves failing to, to meet that conformity, I pray it would not be a work of the flesh that brings about our sorrow, but a true sorrow from, from the heart that wells up then in great joy to recognize that you will receive us and that you have provided for us more than we can imagine.
I pray that our hearts would be filled with joy and understanding of the great truth of your grace and your mercy this day and forevermore. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's take our hymn books and let's stand together and let's turn to number 456. How firm a foundation. Lord, your word is forever. It is firmly fixed in heaven. Psalm 119, 456. of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace.
Our Life of Christ reading this morning is from Luke chapter 7 in verses 36 to 50, talking of a sinful woman forgiven. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is that's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, saying, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered into your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Gracious Father, we're indeed thankful for this example. And we're thankful, that, Lord, that you have indeed forgiven us who have sinned much. Father, as we truly are like this woman, and Lord... <clears throat> There is no God but Christ himself who can forgive sins. And Father, we just give you all the praise and honor and glory for it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand again and take our hymn books and turn to 386. 386. Brethren, we have met to worship.
446. 446. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 446. Blessed assurance. Morning, church. What a beautiful day to praise the Lord, even though it's raining. Amen. Amen. This morning, we're going to be reading Psalm chapter 147. Again, that's Psalm chapter 147. If uh, you don't have your Bible this morning, in the Pew Bible, that's going to be page 525. Psalm chapter 147. In the Pew Bible, that's going to be page 525. Uh, while everybody's turning there, I've, I was reading some Paul Washer this week that I just couldn't, couldn't not share with you all. <laughs> uh, the simplicity of the gospel, yet it's so powerful uh, to each of our lives. <clears throat> Even the most minor theme of Scripture is worth a thousand lifetimes of study. However, one theme rises above them all, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ is not some minor accessory that transforms our life and improves it. In receiving the gospel, he becomes our life. To receive the gospel is to receive an entirely different view of reality, where Christ is at the epicenter of all things. Amen to that. 
Psalm 147. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyra. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those whose hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you today for the many blessings that you've given us that we do not deserve. We're totally depraved in our sin apart from Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the sound of children that you've brought to this congregation. We ask, Lord, and, and pray today for the salvation of every child here. Lord, may we preach and live the word faithfully in our homes to set a godly example to glorify Christ and point our children to you. Lord, help us to be servants in all aspects of our lives this coming week. Servants of the gospel, servants to one another in the church, servants at home and servants at work. Let the world see a set-apart people, not living for today, but living for a world to come. We thank you again, Lord, for a church that desires sound teaching, admonition in your word. We ask, God, that you continue bringing more brothers and sisters like us who desire Christ and holiness and have a hunger for your word. Help us to hate our sin, Lord, righteously. Sanctify us, Lord, daily. We desire today, Lord, to exalt your name, and we ask for you to open our hearts and minds through worship and song first, but most of all through the preaching of your scriptures. We ask, Lord, that you break any hard heart here today and save anyone that doesn't know Jesus Christ. Lord, give us the strength and opportunity to proclaim the gospel this week in the home place, in the workplace. Let your scriptures be on our hearts and our minds that it flows from our mouth. We ask God that you bless the offering today, Lord, and let us use it for your glory alone. It's in Christ's name that we ask all these things and pray. Amen.
Amen. Thank you, Amber. Ladies, Blake, and church. I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 6. We're going through this epistle to the Hebrews. If you haven't been with us, this is essentially, as I said, a, a first century sermon, an exemplar, if you will. And we've come up to this place in chapter 6, which is the third warning in this epistle. This particular one is more difficult than some of the others for some people, and there's a lot of different ideas about what it means exactly. And hopefully we have walked you up to this point to provide a better foundation for you to understand what is going on here in chapter 6. It helps to see things in its bigger context. It doesn't need to be that difficult. And I don't see it as incredibly difficult if we keep it in context to what the preacher of Hebrews is trying to convey. He is ultimately, and the the theme that will hold all of it together, and it needs to be seen in this way, he is emphasizing the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And in particular, it's comparative to Judaism, Christianity, as opposed to Christi- uh, Judaism. His exposition of this fact, the completion that is in Jesus Christ, is an exposition, I said, of Psalm 110. And he gets to this point in Psalm 110 when Melchizedek is brought up. And he has to take a little bit of a detour in verse 11 of chapter 5 and call the church then not to be lazy. Don't be dull of hearing. He wants the church to pay attention to the message because this is a matter of life and death. It's a vital instruction. It's easy to be distracted by physical things, responsibilities, good things, and even, in their case, religious things. But the danger is, as he said previously, was to drift away from those spiritual realities which are both temporal and ultimately eternal value. That's the essence of his first warning in chapter 2. This warning here in really beginning at verse 11 of chapter 5, he calls the people of God to not be dull of hearing or lazy is the way to, you could also translate it. This continues, this warning, all the way through chapter 6 and verse 12, and it ends with the, with the exact same word in Greek translated in your text as sluggish. means to be lazy. <coughs> There's a positive admonition as this warning ends, and then he moves back into his exposition, including that of explaining the idea of the Melchizedek priesthood, he would say in verse 12 of chapter 6, note here, but 
imitators. He's calling the God's people to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He will describe those people in chapter 11, by the way. So this is This is tied together. These are not isolated ideas. He is moving through a particular trajectory. So he calls them then to be diligent, that is to to work hard, to see the significance of the mediatorial work of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. That which was symbolized in the past through the ministry of Aaron, the priesthood. And as he brings up, Melchizedek, who they've largely forgotten about, each one in a different aspect in a way. Their focus, it seems, is, was primarily on the ritualistic aspects of religion, prescribed by God as they were and as important as they were. They missed the point to which they were to draw one's attention. They were to draw one's attention to Jesus Christ, Jesus who is the Messiah. If you remember in John, John chapter 4 speaks of the, we know as the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Half Jew, half Gentile. They had a religious order and a system that had its roots in Judaism, but it gone a different direction. They worshipped on Mount Gerizim. The Jews worship in Jerusalem. And so when Jesus confronts her, that's her point. What, what kind of religious practice should we be engaged in? Gerizim or Jerusalem? Jesus would answer her in addition to tell her, woman, you don't know what you're talking about. And then he explains... That God is spirit, John 4, 24. Think about it. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Those places, those symbols, those products, if you will, they were simply pointers, symbolic of that which is true. The woman said to him, Well, I know the Messiah, that means the the anointed one, the Christ in Greek. The Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. And, And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus floored her with this, I who speak to you am he. That's what all of this pointed to. She knew that even in her mixed up religious idea that there would be a Messiah that would come. A God man. And when he comes, he would reveal all of it. He he would put it all in order and completion. And Jesus says, I am that one. I have that authority. In Religious practices, it's, it's easy to get caught up in these external things of ritual rather than the reality of worship of Christ. He's pointing here to an idea of a spiritual truth. 
In the case of this original audience into which this sermon was preached, they will have some of those external practices which were important demonstrated. That's what you're going to see in the text. These things were part of Judaism, and they were not bad. They were prescribed, but they had a purpose. The purpose of all of that was to point to Jesus Christ. He has come. And so the preacher of Hebrews is saying, how much better Christ is than all the prophets. How much better that Christ is than all the angels. How much better that Christ is than Moses, than Joshua, than Aaron, and the whole Levitical priesthood, and even Melchizedek. In our case, you can certainly find application to this truth in whatever practices that you might engage in, good as they may very well be. They may very well be good practices, but symbolic, and that is pointing to the very substance. We'll have a baptism here, Lord willing, in the afternoon. That This water doesn't provide salvation. It symbolizes, in a physical way, that which is true spiritually. It points to the glory of Christ. And when you see that and think about his death, his burial, and his resurrection, that's what it's communicating, that great spiritual truth. And so we have some symbolic ways to engage in our worship practice, but to point to the reality that is in Jesus Christ. Now, in our last message, chapter 5, 11, and following, we focused on this warning as it was introduced. And he first begins by telling us, well, don't be apathetic about all of this. And as I mentioned, because why? Because apathy, in other words, if you don't really care about it, if you're not paying attention to it, to what is being said, that is going to lead to apostasy. Apostasy is from those who hear the truth, as as we'll explain later on in chapter 6. They hear the truth, they're around the truth, they know all about it, they know all the cliches, they know all the words. They engage in some of the practices. It's a part of their ritualistic life, but there's no reality. And the danger is that if you don't pay any attention to it, he would say dull of hearing, lazy, not engaging. The danger is it's going to lead to spiritual and eternal death, apostasy. Why do people walk away from the faith? It's real simple, unbelief. We know that they're unregenerate. Ultimately, you can't walk away from Christ, who really, a really regenerate person. We'll get into that next week. However, ultimately, as they demonstrate, they don't have faith. They may have convinced themselves that they're believers, but they're not. They may have engaged in all of the religious practices, but when engaged in the flesh... That will not bring about what we're calling for, and that is the fruit, not of the flesh, but of the Spirit. 
So in chapter 6, after he warns about apathy, not paying attention to this, he will move forward with really a prescription, I would say, an antidote for spiritual apostasy. Titled this message, Spiritual Apostasy Part 1, just to make it brief, but, but really beyond that, specifically what we'll have time to focus on is the anecdote to it. Right here at the very beginning, he gives that um, uh, address. Let's go ahead and read it, though, in its context, and I'll read verses 1 through 12 of chapter 6, if you'd like to join me. Hebrews chapter 6, 1 through 12. As he gives this warning, preceded by the anecdote, which we'll get into. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instructions about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection for the dead, and eternal judgment. And this will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance. Since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to whom to, to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop is useful to those whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is, is worthless. And near to being cursed. And its end is to be burned. That's apostasy. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel, more, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust to, so as to overlook your work. And the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I do pray that each one of us would truly hear and heed this great warning of apostasy. May we not be engaged in religious activities, thinking somehow that brings upon us some sort of merit. But we, may we indeed be diligent, examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith, confess Jesus Christ as Lord, and through the power of the Spirit imitate those who, through faith, and endurance, much endurance in this life, ultimately inherit the promises that are beyond our imagination. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I wanted to set the context here and read 
to the end of this warning, as I mentioned, just because of the time allotted, I think it would be helpful for us to, to look at this first section, the first three verses, which I subtitled, An Anecdote to Spiritual Apostasy, The Antidote to Spiritual Apostasy. Next week, we're going to pick up where I left off for and the rest of the way with some concepts that may be a little bit more difficult, but that deal with the idea of eternal security and the idea of restoration of those who apostatize. And we'll look at that next time. But now, this is a charge, a proactive charge, if you will, to, to not be sluggish, dull of hearing, lazy, if you will, but to engage so that you don't wind up as an, as an apostate. And not caring about it and not engaging, not taking the antidote, if you will, is a great warning. Because being apathetic about it will indeed lead to apostasy. It's the gateway to it. So what is the antidote to start out with? so that we can not be lazy, not be sluggish. Well, he begins there in verse 1 of chapter 6, and I want you to see the word maturity. <clears throat> now, this phrase, leaving the elementary doctrines of, of Christ, I'll unpack in just a bit. But for now, I want you to see the, the positive admonition to do this, to go on to maturity. You want to make sure you don't become an apostate? Grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord. Maturity here, as it's worded, can also be translated perfection or completeness. And you'll see how that fits in. He's pointing to a growth in Jesus Christ. This is a, an appeal to the church to who they have embraced Christ. They, they have left Judaism. They have embraced Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Remember, in Judaism, they, they, they killed the Messiah. Now, now they're embracing the Messiah. And he's saying, go on to perfection. Go on to the maturity that is in Jesus Christ. It isn't just something they added to the religious order and identity. This is a whole new direction of life. And for anyone that comes to Christ, that, that is the call. Jesus says, follow me. It may cost you very much. And hence, he would say, pick up your cross, each one of you, and follow me. But, but that your identity would be in Jesus Christ. And the call is, it isn't a, a one-time event in where you make some sort of declaration. It is a totally different disposition of life to which you're called to mature and grow. So if you want to avoid the possibility of apostasy, mature in your faith. In this life, we... We lived in a, in a cursed world. You're going to need the strength by spiritual growth to be able to stand. 
You'll need to be able to persevere when the winds of adversity blow. You'll need the courage of your conviction to do what is morally right before God when everyone around you is trying to draw your attention away from the glory of his presence. And what a good analogy, maturity, like a child that we see and we know that develops. A child is is, um, susceptible to many dangers for a number of reasons. Their inexperience, lack of strength, lack of maturity... And likewise, a Christian must, be, must also develop and grow to be able to withstand in the evil day a present adversary who is intent on ultimately, not necessarily just destroying you, that's penultimate. Ultimate is to disgrace God, to diminish his glory. You know what glorifies God? Sinners repenting and returning and being restored. That glorifies God. And so we're called then as Christians who come to faith in Christ that it just doesn't stop there as an affirmation of truth, but instead to spiritually grow in grace in the knowledge of the Lord. Listen how, P- how Peter puts this, and I invite you to turn. And see this in comparison to the preaching, the apostolic preaching of Hebrews. It's, it's essentially the same concepts, just put in a different way, a manner of speaking. Second Peter ends with that statement, growing grace in the knowledge of the Lord, one of my favorite, Second Peter 3.18. But it's a summary of the text, and... Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, you'll see it, as he gives you a more expanded reading of that brief statement. He said in verse 2 of chapter 1 in 2 Peter, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and and of Jesus our Lord. So grace and peace, then, he's calling for to to be part of your, your life. God's grace granted and the peace that we have between God. How does this come about? Verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's how it comes about. That's the idea of grace. And note here, which we'll emphasize later (coughs) at the end, if I get to it, that it, it comes about through a supernatural divine power. He has granted it to you. This isn't something that you come about on your own thinking through the flesh. This comes about as a very gift of God, and indeed it is powerful. It's powerful to change the disposition of somebody's heart, that is, their their mind, their affections. You ever try to convince somebody who is convinced of something else? Very difficult, isn't it? They don't want to give in. So, so what changes? The dynamic work of the power of the Holy Spirit to change the heart from a sinner to a saint. For somebody who really could care less about Christ, who now Christ is central to their life. This doesn't come about just because you're a good thinker. 
It comes about by the very grace of God. And it's in all things. It's through the, and notice how this is connected, the knowledge of him then. This is, this is something that must, must grow, not to get information and just to know more stuff than other people. It is to, to know expanding aspects of the beauty and glory of who God is. He has called us. To his own glory, that is the the beauty of his divine perfections, you might think about it. Every aspect of God, which is absolutely perfect, and notice here, and excellence. That's another way to, to describe perfection, by which we are to grow towards that, his glory, his excellence. By which he has granted to us, how did we get it? precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become, note this, partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. He changes the very nature and heart of the person. It's a heart transplant, spiritually, something that We don't have the capacity to bring about. Paul would say, I don't know. I just preach Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of sin. That's all I did. And people see it through the dynamic work of the Holy Spirit. It's expressed in how their hearts are changed. This partaking of the divine nature is his glory and his excellence. This would parallel to the idea of perfection, or in Hebrews where it says, let us go on to maturity. Some of your translations will say, let us go on to perfection. What is that maturity? What is that perfection? Yes, never perfect in this life, but Christ is perfect, and that's our goal. That's what we're moving towards, to him. And it's already been granted to those that are in Christ Jesus. It's just a matter of time to where you will receive a glorified body, stand perfect in his presence, not because of your righteousness, but because of Christ's. And that way it is an escape. It's escape from the corruption that is in the world that you see. Death, disease, difficulty. I hate it all. Don't you? You want to escape from it? through Christ. So he says, and here again, I I see the parallel in Hebrews. I hope you do too. Here's the same urgency then, verse 5 of 2 Peter. Okay, this is the state of the believer. Perfection in Christ. Partaker of the divine nature. His glory, his excellence. So because of that and based on that, then for this very reason, for those that are in Christ, that it has been granted his power, then make every effort to supplement your faith. That's another way of saying grow. And it's not going to come about by being lazy, by being dull of hearing. You're going to have to engage, make every effort then to supplement, that is to, to grow in your faith. And notice how he expresses it in just different ways so we can help think about it. With virtue, and with virtue, knowledge, 
and knowledge self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and with steadfastness with godliness, and with godliness with brotherly affection, and with brotherly affection, love, true love. (coughs) That's what Peter then is calling based on to those that are in Christ, partakers of that divine nature, to engage. To engage, of course, which will emphasize here at the end, it isn't just from the flesh, of course not. It isn't the flesh at all. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. But, but those who have been regenerated are called then to, to, to engage in it, to make every effort, take a bite of truth, chew it, make it part of your life so that you can gain that virtue that knowledge, that self-control. You see how this can be an anecdote to apostasy? Because if these qualities are yours, verse 8, and are increasing, understand that as maturity, right? It's growing in your life. If all those qualities are yours and they're increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's plenty of people who have knowledge about Jesus Christ. And and the preacher of Hebrews is going to direct his attention at them. But if you're increasing in that, if you're growing in grace and the knowledge of the Lord, this is an antidote to ineffectiveness or unfruitfulness. The fruit is, the speaking is, again, it isn't the fruit of the flesh, it's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, self-control. You know, the kinds of things that he just mentioned here. Verse 9. On the other hand, if you're not doing that, whoever lacks these qualities is nearsighted. He's so nearsighted that he's blind. He hasn't forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. That goes back to this verse 3, right? He has granted that to us. Therefore, verse 10, one more stab at it, be all the more diligent. Be all the more diligent to do what? Confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. The falling is the falling away or apostatizing. So here he's saying, examine and be more diligent. One, if if you are growing, it's going to bring about great spiritual fruit in your life and help protect you against this idea of falling away. And beyond that, if you are growing, you are examining, you are praying and engaging with God, there is going to be a confirmation that you indeed are called by God and chosen by him. See, this is self-examination. Because you don't want to be engaged and spend your whole life engaged in all kinds of religious activities and then spend eternity in in the judgment of God in the wrath to come. What What an absolute waste. And that will occur. Jesus said that many will say to me, Lord, Lord, on that day. Didn't we do all this stuff? Were we engaged in all these ritualistic practices, but they were external and not from the heart. So as you grow and you examine these things, you also then can confirm your own 
calling and election. One of the reasons people struggle, by the way, with assurance of salvation, one of the reasons, I would say, is they're not diligent in growing in grace and the knowledge of the Lord. They don't put forth a great effort. And no wonder they struggle with this assurance of salvation. For in this way, verse 11, you'll be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I wouldn't want to be any other place, would you? This is a great restatement, if you will, expressed a little differently, but, but essentially a similar directive given to us by the preacher in Hebrews. This apostolic message given by Jesus then to his apostles and then taught by the apostles and recorded for us in sacred scripture today is simply this, grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord. But beloved, understand this, it takes diligent effort. Two, well, it looks like I got two more texts. We'll see if we can get through this. Um, but I think it's worthy of looking at the text more than it is to listen to me. But I, so I invite you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. And I'm going to emphasize this idea of diligent effort. You want to grow in grace, but it's hard work. Go start your little Bible reading program and see how that works out. A lot of people don't get past Leviticus. I understand. It is difficult. But you understand each one of those speak of Christ. It's a pointer to that. It's hard work sometimes to do that. And remember in in Hebrews chapter 5 he said, by this time you should have been teachers because all of us that are in Christ, the the point is you're going to grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord. Why? Why, just so that you can accumulate a lot of information for you to have? No, so that you can give a reason for the hope that lies within you. So that you can share it with someone else. So that you can teach them whether they're a believer or an unbeliever. So that you can encourage the other saints. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul tells his protege, Timothy, to be strengthened. To be strengthened in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. Again, this is a work of the Spirit, not the flesh, but he's calling him to be strengthened and to take what he has been taught, heard, and teach it to others so that they can go on and teach it to others. That's the point. It's not going to be easy. Verse 3 says you're going to share in the suffering like a good soldier. And then he says no soldier then gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who lifted him. Another example, an athlete. Athlete's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Then he uses a third example, the farmer. It's a hard-working farmer who ought to have share in the first uh, of the crops. Think over what I say, and the Lord will give you understanding in everything. He's asked you to stop and think about it. To think about what? This hard work, and he points out a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. And if you know anything about any of those, you'll know that they're hardworking people. <laughs> you have to be very diligent. And beyond, and beyond that, they, you just don't 
be a, you're not a soldier for a day or an athlete for a day or a farmer for a day. It's every day. It's your life. It's your lifestyle. This is who you are and, and what you do. Great analogies that you can push it even beyond that, but just for brevity, just we'll stop with that. The, 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 it is much difficulty to engage in those occupations. And likewise, in Christianity, it isn't going to be any less. It's, there's going to be times of great difficulty. But Paul would tell Timothy later on in this chapter, verse 15, then to be diligent. To be diligent, to present yourself to God as one that is indeed approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We have to get it right. And to do so, we're going to have to put the time in to get it right. This message is primarily to the believer. To grow, you have to be diligent and not lazy. Engaging in spiritual disciplines is, is essentially a lifestyle. It's the daily discipline of that activity, whether it's spending time in God's Word, private prayer, meditation, engagement with other Christians. It's your, it's your life. And by doing so, brings about great growth and development, as those analogies of these people would suggest. When people are struggling in their spiritual relationship with God, you can often pinpoint the problem in their lack of spiritual growth because they're no longer engaged in the, in the life, in the body of Christ. They're emaciated and then exposed to false teaching that comes along from those who might profess that they know Christ that are almost true. but have a stain of deadly poison. This idea of maturity is done so within the growth of a community of believers, and I think that's another important thing to emphasize. And I'll try to be brief. Don't laugh. For Ephesians chapter 4, but look at it. We'll see if we can get through this. Ephesians 4. When I'm talking about spiritual growth and maturity, you will need to engage independently and individually on your own. But even in the occupations that were mentioned, you know, an athlete's going to compete with somebody. A soldier is going to be part of a unit. And there are some single farmers out there, but normally at least has some animals or some machines in our day. In their day, certainly, it's engaged with other people that are involved. And that's the idea of growing, too, that God would give to the body of Christ, the church, those that would, would shepherd and teach the church, verse 11 in Ephesians 4, it is a gift of God. 
And what's the purpose? Well, the purpose of that is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So that they can engage this work of the ministry that needs to be done, whether it's helping someone else out in need, encouraging one, rebuking one, teaching one, that kind of thing. It's done by the body of Christ, equipped by those that have been called to equip them. For this building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood. This measure, the stature of the fullness of Christ. So it's not only individually that we grow and mature, but it's also corporately. And that can't be set out, aside. It isn't just that you mature in the faith, but that we collectively mature in the faith, that we bring up sons and daughters to mature in the faith, that we're all engaged in this process with one another. And I do. I don't say this as a rebuke. I say this as an observation. I thank you for engaging with one another. You do. Somebody's sick or in need or needs prayer, folks are engaged. We do it systematically and sporadically as it needs arise. This way we become mature, he says, to fullness of Christ, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by the craftiness and deceitful schemes. This is how Satan is. He's, He's cunning, almost true, crafty. But rather, instead, we're speaking the truth and love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is head, that is, Christ from the whole body, joined together, held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This growth in maturity is a call individually and corporately. Now back to our text in Hebrews 6. I want to just explain this then, and I think it should be clear to you. Called to mature, but what are we to leave? Verse 1. It says to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Now, if you take this out of context, I think your, your first glance at it, maybe, if you weren't thinking about the context in which we've talked about, and hopefully I've given you a foundation and reminded of you of it today. But some, and I've seen it in commentaries, well, let's say you've got to leave the ABCs of Christianity. They're wrong. We don't move on from the gospel. We don't move on from the incarnation, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Those aren't the elementary teachings of Christ that he's talking about. We don't move on from John 3.16. In fact, it's more profound than you ever could imagine. I think Gordon will share with us at some point. But he's only going to give you a little glimpse of it. Because whatever you glimpse, there's so much more. That's not what he's talking about. The primary focus here is preaching Christ as supreme. Him crucified for the forgiveness of sins. So what, so what are you going to leave then to go on to maturity? In their case, 
Specifically, in context here, this is an admonition to leave those to leave Judaism to go to Christianity. That's what he's talking about. Remember the context in which this admonition is given. He's telling the church then not to regress backwards. Don't fall away from Christ. This church that was being addressed was mostly Jews. They had left Judaism, as I've mentioned, and embraced Jesus Christ. Some of them were having second thoughts. They felt the pull of their culture, their family, and their friends. They were the odd man out in nearly every circumstance of life. They wanted to fit in. They wanted to see if there's a way, well, can we, can we confess Christ and, and still keep our culture and conform to it? This preacher staunchly warns them that this is not the direction that is going to lead to life. Going back to Judaism, in their case, embraces aspects of it is a step backwards. Judaism had a point. And a purpose. You know what it was? Jesus. And he's come. The prophet spoke in many different ways, didn't he? God spoke through them. But now he has spoken through his son. Do you see that? That is the perfection. That is the completion. That is the maturity. Moving on to Jesus Christ. Paul addresses this in, the, in a greater way in Galatians, and we'll jump there. Galatians chapter 3. There isn't anything wrong with Judaism in the way God had established it, but he had a purpose for it, and that was to point to Christ, to be preparatory to Jesus. In 319 of Galatians, that this is a church at Galatia that was also struggling with this. And again, it's understandable. You might relate it to your culture. Okay? You say, well, I'm not a Jew, I'm not into Judaism, I don't understand. Okay, how about just American culture? Try that. You'll see how that applies. I won't pressure it any further. You get the idea. But in their context, why then the law, verse 19? Well, it was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. Who, who's that offspring? Read Messiah, Jesus Christ. It was there until then. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. The law then, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would come indeed by the law. You know why it doesn't bring about life? Because you ain't keeping it. There's not a single one of us that have ever kept any of the Ten Commandments. Not for five seconds. It, does it mean it's bad? No, it's good. It's the declaration of the very righteousness of God. The problem is, me in and of myself, I'm not a righteous one. If 
For the law had been given, if it, could, if it could give life, then the righteousness would indeed be by the law. But it's not. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Because the, the, the penalty of sin is death. That's why. And I keep sinning. So I keep earning death. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given. That's grace. By those who believe. That's faith. Now, before faith came, we were, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned, until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified, that is, declared righteous by faith, faith in Jesus Christ. But now, though, that faith has come, this is the idea of, of this leaving the elementary principles, now that faith has come, we're no longer under that guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you are baptized into Christ, this isn't talking about the symbolic baptism, this is talking about a spiritual immersion or union with Christ. If you've been baptized with Christ, you've put on Christ. And therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, Male or female, you are one in Christ. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. There's a promise given, the Abrahamic covenant. Guess what? In Jesus Christ, you inherit all the promises because everybody else was unfaithful. Jesus Christ was the only one that was faithful. And it is because of him you will have the inheritance. So why would you go back to anything else? And in your day, if I, why would you go to anything within your culture? Why would you go to anything else other than Christ? Back to our text in verse 1, Hebrews 6. Maybe you can get the point now. Therefore, let us leave. Or it can be translated, and probably better, having left. They were there, in their case, Judaism. In your case, it might be your cultural Christianity or cultural religious activity or just cultural atheism. We've left that. We left the elementary doctrines of Christ. Christ here is speaking of the Messiah. The elementary, that is the preparatory idea of the, a Messiah that is to come. Let us then go on to maturity. What he's saying in their case is leave Judaism, which is imperfect, and go on to the perfection in Christ. The imperfection isn't that there's something wrong with it. It isn't. The imperfection is us. The perfection is that is what it is pointed to and what is completed in Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of all the symbols, of all that Judaism pointed to. He's not talking about the ABCs of Christianity. The ABCs of Christianity are what all of these things pointed to. These were elementary. And when you go read through the text, which we encourage you to do so, Jesus says, all of these things in the Old Testament, they spoke of me. That is what you're looking forward to. But you're not going to practice those things. Sabbath keeping. Specific days. Specific food requirements. All of that is gone. 
Jesus has made it all clean. Who do you look to? Look to Jesus Christ. They had a point because everyone who attempted to, to do all of that and to keep all that failed. All they did simply was lower the bar and to try to, to make it easier to cross. And if you remember, Jesus would address them in his Sermon on the Mount and said, well, well you said this, but I say. You said you shouldn't kill. I said you shouldn't hate. You, should, you said you, you shouldn't commit adultery. I say you shouldn't look with lust. A much higher standard, the spirit of the law. None of us have followed and fulfilled the law, but Jesus Christ had. Back to our text, just to show you the connection there in the text then with these six things that are mentioned. These are fundamental and foundational elements of Judaism. They are pointers and symbols to Christ. So the point is, you're not going to engage in those. You're going to see what those pointed to in Christ. See, it has a foundation, a benefit to point to Christ. Look at the first one. He says in our text here, not laying again a foundation of repentance from the dead. Well, that sounds right until you think about Judaism. Judaism with that law was repent or die. I think every one of the Ten Commandments specifically say the penalty is death, except one. So don't go to church on Sunday and die. <laughs> it's a tough religion. Because the, the penalty of the law is death. The consequence is death. Ultimately, it points to a spiritual death. It puts you in a condition where you recognize you need a Savior. The law is good and right, but the people are not. They were not keeping the law. They were worthy of death. Jesus called these people who redefined the law as whitewashed tombs. That is, you look good on the outside, but you're inside, you're full of dead man's bones. There's no spiritual life. The law was to show them what righteousness is and their failure to obtain it and that God would have to change their heart and bring about a regenerate, live heart. Second, it says of faith in God. And again, we want to have faith in God. Judaism rightly exclaimed that God is one, one being. But what they failed to emphasize, and, and rightly so because it wasn't clear, although there's indications of it in the scripture, that God is comprised of three persons. Let us make man in our image after our likeness in Genesis. You don't need to use plural pronouns in Hebrew to speak about the majesty of God. That's a clear indication of the personhood of the one being in God. We don't worship a God that we make up in our own mind. And then when further revelation comes, that is ultimately when Christ then makes that clear that he indeed is God incarnate and then sends the Holy Spirit who will dwell in the believer, then here's our understanding of God that is perfect, 
Get it? That is mature, that is complete. Stepping backwards is, and a failure to embrace God for who he actually is, is a step backwards into apostasy. Third, it says, and instructions about washing in verse 2. Some of your texts might say baptism. It's the same idea, immersion into water. The washings were part of Judaism. They served their point in, in pointing to spiritual cleansing that is required. But these physical rituals were shadows of what is promised. What is promised and what it points to is the reality of Christ who Paul would say to Titus that he saved us, Titus 3, 5, not because of works done in us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of the regeneration of the renewal of the Holy Spirit, which he poured out richly through us, through, uh, richly to us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Fourth, it says a laying on of hands. And I would say this ritual of laying on of hands was most predominantly in Judaism the idea that you would have a sacrifice and 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 lay your hands on that sacrifice that is to transfer your sins symbolically on that sacrifice but the preacher of Hebrews would remind us in chapter 10 that the, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to actually take away sin so why are you going to go back to that you know who actually takes away sin? Jesus Christ. You know whose sin was actually put on Jesus? Our sin. See, you don't, you don't go back to this ritual of doing this that, that, that points to the reality that is Jesus. Do you get it? Fifth, the resurrection of the dead. The Old Testament taught ideas about the resurrection, but they were not clear on it again until Jesus Christ came. The, the, the certainty of it and the reality of it is all explained in Jesus Christ. They had an idea that there would be some sort of resurrection and different people had different ideas. Some even doubted the resurrection at all. Some only thought a certain people would be in it. But there is a resurrection, beloved, unto life, and there's a resurrection unto death. That is, you will either live eternally in the wrath of God or eternally in his presence, in the fullness of joy. And so here's a clarification of what this resurrection is. I'll read it, uh, just a selection from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about Christ who is raised from the dead. And that some say that there is no resurrection. But if there is no resurrection, then Christ hasn't even been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true the dead aren't raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So where are you going to go back to? In your sin? If you don't trust in Jesus Christ who's raised from the dead, you will not raise from the dead. Your faith would be futile. You'd be in your sin. And if we have 
hope only in this life, we are of all people to be most pitied. Because religion doesn't hold a candle to the reality that is in Jesus Christ. But Christ has raised the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. See, this is the completion of the idea of resurrection. That's what he's getting. Not suggesting that the Old Testament concept of resurrection is somehow bad. It wasn't completed until Christ came. And we understand why do people, well, how, why and how would anybody actually raise from the dead? Because they're in Christ. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And I'll have to end on this because of time. And you guys might get mad because you're hungry. But this sixth um, mention here is of eternal judgment. There's concepts of judgment in the Old Testament. But again, it's completed and clarified in Christ in the New Testament exposition. Because in judgment, you're not going to stand generically in front of some authority. It'll be Jesus Christ. So, where are you going to go? What are you going to go back to? There is one person to whom you must give account. Guess what? It's not me. It's not any religious tradition you came from. You're certainly not going to give account at the end to the culture in which you live. You'll give an account to one person. His name is Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Jesus said, the Father judges no one, John 5, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father, and whoever doesn't honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. That's his point. Leave those basic and incomplete things and find its perfection and its completion in Jesus Christ. And I just said it wasn't going to go on, but I won't belabor this point, I think you can get it. How will this come about? Do you see verse 3? If God permit. It it calls you to humbly look to God and say, "I, I need to be aware of your power that you can actually accomplish this in my life. That that you can enable me to be able to grow in grace in the knowledge of the Lord. That you can Sustain me so that I don't turn back and turn away and apostatize of the faith. Beloved, you're not going to come to Christ in your own strength, and you're not going to remain in Christ in your own strength. It'll be through God and his power alone. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you bless the exposition of your word. May you, may you uh, do your work among your people. Cause us to grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord. Cause us to stand firm and fast to the truth of who you are. I pray that your blessings would be upon us not just this day, but in days to come. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Take a moment now, beloved, to think on these things, to respond in the way that Christ has spoken to you. Take a moment now.
Father, I do pray that indeed we would live a life that glorifies your holy name, not because in our strength and power, but in yours. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand and turn to 474. In our hymnals, 474. All the way, my Savior leads me. psalmist admonishes us to do this he says praise the lord praise god in his sanctuary praise him in his mighty heavens praise him for his mighty deeds praise him according to his excellent greatness let everything that has breath praise the lord praise ye the lord gracious father we're indeed thankful for your precious word and we do indeed praise you and honor and glorify you for all that you are. Father, we just ask now that you would bless as we go to the fellowship hall. We ask that you would bless the food that we're about to partake of to our bodies. We give you all the praise and honor and glory. Bless the fellowship around the table and the services that continues during the baptism. We ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen.